Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Professor Parthen Mohanram, Professor of Accounting in the John H. Watson Chair in Value Investing at the University of Toronto. Professor Mohanram's expertise and research spans across different areas of finance, but our conversation mostly focuses on his work that sits at the intersection of accounting, finance, and the potential drivers of stock returns. The professor's most downloaded paper, the one based on his G-score method, is one of the models we've captured quantitatively on Validia. The professor's depth of investing knowledge, along with his ability to easily explain concepts, is impressive and refreshing. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Oh, just one other thing. If you find this episode valuable, and if you write a review on Apple Podcasts and email us a screenshot, we'll give you one month free of Validia Professional. This is a $100 value in our highest-end research product, and one that includes access to the top-performing model based on the G-score method and Mohan Ram's research. Professor Mohanran, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm very well. Thanks for having me. I don't know if you um, remember this, but we actually met with you when you were at Columbia in 06. Well, I remember it very clearly. I remember um, I was probably, I probably looked 15 years younger. It was almost 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, I was a totally unknown junior assistant professor at Columbia. I'm still relatively unknown senior tenure professor now at the University of Toronto, but very little has changed. You know, so I, I remember meeting you guys very well. And uh, I actually had lost track of you guys and your company till a few years ago when uh, I guess some person who was looking at your website sent me an email or a text saying, hey, Partha, you're listed as a guru on this website along with like some pretty big names. And so I went and checked out your website and like I remember I posted it on Facebook and me and my friends had a good laugh about it. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, so I do remember that very well actually, so yeah. Yeah, well I think you're right. It's like 15 years ago we were obviously a lot younger and I'd like to think we've become a little bit smarter with uh, the markets, but you know, sometimes with time um, you realize that you clearly have a lot more to learn um, and always learning. And that's the one thing that, you know, yesterday I printed out your CV because I wanted to just kind of bring myself up to speed. And, and Jack and I have been talking about, um, you know, what we were going to ask you. And it was funny. I, uh, so I downloaded the CV and then usually when you print out a CV, you know, it's like one or two pages. So yours was 11 pages long. So you clearly have a lot of stuff and interesting stuff that we, uh, we want to talk about with you, but I thought maybe you could just to start and set the stage a little bit, if you could kind of um, give us an overview of generally where your research interests lie and maybe how they've evolved over the years a little bit. I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of different pieces of research as we get into this, but I think sort of a, a, a summary overview of, of, you know, your research would be um, good to start. Oh, so, so thank you for those kind words. Uh, a disclaimer, right? Some of those 11 pages are like really boring stuff, like every place I've ever presented at and every course I've ever taught and stuff. So it's not nearly as impressive as 11 pages sounds out, uh, sounds uh, appears to be, but uh, thank you nonetheless. So uh, let me give you an overview of, uh, of my research. In fact, let me go back even further in time, okay? So one thing you will notice is my research is sort of uh, at the, I would call this at the intersection of uh, uh, finance and accounting. Right, so I'm actually in the accounting department, but uh, accounting uh, uh, area, you know, at uh, first at NYU and then in Columbia and now at Toronto. But my research has always had a very strong uh, capital market focus to it. And that goes back very uh, from, uh, from my PhD days, where my PhD was in business economics at Harvard. And this is a joint program between the econ department and the business schools. And even though... Uh, you know, my advisors and all were mostly from the accounting areas. So the, the, the area I was always interested in was always sort of markets and, uh, you know, things like that. 
I started off actually looking at disclosure. So my, my thesis and my early research was actually was on disclosure. But then when I moved to NYU, uh, when I started my career, I started working on, it just so happened, I started working on topics related to valuation. So my very first paper I ever published, and this really goes back in time, this is around the year 2000 when we're trying to understand what determines the valuation of internet stocks. And this was, we started working on the paper actually before the crash happened, but obviously the paper was published after it happened. But what we kind of found in that paper was even in those incredibly irrational times, financial statement variables actually had predictive value. So even when you're talking about, let's uh, look at the, uh, I'm, I'm pulling out names from my hat here, okay? The valuation of drcoop.com was one of those brilliant companies which you know rose like a shooting star and then crashed and burned, right? Even in those sort of incredibly irrational environments, fundamentals seem to matter. So I've always had this sort of interest in my uh, academic career. So if you look at my research, right, there are three or four streams of research. One of them is very obviously this valuation, stock picking, you know, so like, for example, this G-score and a couple of the papers that you guys are probably very familiar with. That's one area of research. Second area of research is I've done a lot of work on, uh, some work on disclosure. That is how uh, financial statements and how they are presented, how that information is actually used or misused by people, uh, you know, different people that be intermediaries like analysts or just end users or whatever. So I've done a fair amount of research on that. I've also done a lot of research uh, on this idea of cost of capital, specifically this idea of implied cost of capital, which is trying to use the market and forecast to figure out what the implicit cost of capital must be in the market's terms and how that metric might also be a useful uh, uh, sort of proxy for people to look at. So those have been my two or three uh, streams of research. In general, if I was to look at unifying theme, right, I look at things uh, which uh, require you to have insights in finance, accounting, and just sort of economics or business strategy. So the main, the bottom line is people, and by people it could be investors, it could be intermediaries, it could be the firms themselves, take numbers as given without understanding what's behind those numbers. And that can lead to bad decisions. It can lead to bad decisions for investors. It can lead to bad decisions for boards if you're compensating CEOs on earnings and you don't pay attention to how those earnings have come into being. Uh, uh, it can, you know, so, so the bottom line is just pay attention to not just the numbers, but how those numbers got sort of got into the form that they were in. So that would be my sort of overlying uh, overarching uh, summary of my research. Great, that's a that's a great overview, and I think mosaic of the things that you spent your career really working on and investigating. Um, we did. You're right. We run the we run the strategy based on uh, the G score model on Validia. It's. I know you talked about this on the podcast with Tobias Carlyle. Um, it it is one of the better. We've been running it in real time since '06, and it's one of the, on the long only side, it's one of the best performing strategies that we run out of, uh, there's 22 public strategies now that we, we run and track. Um, but I wanted to just ask you, um, and we're not gonna spend too much time on this just because we, we've talked about another podcast and you obviously discussed it at length with Toby, but you know, just if you wanna give sort of a high level overview of what that model is trying to uncover within the growth stock category, and also, it just made me think of when you were talking about your initial research with those NASDAQ companies, did that play a part in the formation of this G-score idea and research? Because you were seeing that these companies, obviously, the, fu the fundamentals weren't good, but yet they were really strong performers in the growth stock category for a period of time, but then they obviously fell apart. So did that early research play a role in your G-score development? Well, Justin, uh, I had never thought of that till you mentioned it right now. But you know, you never know how these things work. So maybe implicitly in the back of your mind, it might have done something. Uh, you know, it's very easy for you when you think back at your, you look back at your Vita and you say, okay, this paper I wrote because of this, blah, blah, blah. There's a huge amount of serendipity in all of these things. You know, you just sort of do something because somebody comes up and you see something and it kind of causes a, 
light bulb to go off in your head and you say, hey, this might be interesting to look at. So I'll give you an anecdote. Actually, it's not related to G-score about how I wrote a paper based on that. So I have a paper actually with a colleague of mine called Eli Bartov at NYU where we look at options, okay, option exercises. And we look at unusually large option exercises and we show that when CEOs have unusually large option exercises, we associate that with a period of earnings management before the option exercise. So we actually say that, you know, these guys are potentially building up to having a really strong year. That year they, op they exercise a whole bunch of options. And then, you know, earnings management has a habit of uh, reversing, right? You know, if you're using accruals to build up your earnings, eventually those things will reverse. And then afterwards, a stock price may, might fall, but the CEO doesn't care because he or she has exercised that option. In fact, he might be getting the new options at a lower price if the stock price tanks. Actually motivated by my co-author coming up and telling me that I've, noticing, I've been noticing that this guy, Mike Eisner at Disney, he exercises a lot of options, but he does it every X number of years. I wonder if this is systematic, if these guys are actually doing this. So that simple idea, in this case for my co-author, uh, uh, brought this thing to the fore and we decided to test it. So very often things like this cause you to uh, trigger research ideas. In my case, right, the idea for the G-score paper came very simply because I came across the F-score paper by Piotrowski. And uh, Joe is somebody I actually know professionally and I knew him personally as well. So I read the paper and I found it very interesting and I said, you know, this is a very interesting idea. And I also teach financial statement analysis or some version or variant of that course where we actually lose, use these financial statement indicators and stuff. And so it seemed like a very practical, interesting idea. And it showed that there is value to doing this very, very basic things that you, you would think shouldn't predict value because everybody ought to be doing it. So the question I asked was, if this stuff works for value stocks, should it work for growth stocks? And that's how that idea sort of started percolating in my head. And my second idea was, why didn't like Piotrowski try to use this for the universe of stocks? Why was he focusing only on value stocks? Is there something different about growth stocks, which would cause you to kind of want to do something slightly different? So that was the genesis of the G-score uh, uh, paper. And if you look at the different signals within that paper, right, it also ties into this earlier point of mine that you shouldn't take numbers as given. So like, for example, uh, the G-score paper focuses on high market to book stocks or what we call low, low book to market stocks, right? Uh, but many of these firms, they have high, high market to books uh, ratios, not because uh, they're potentially overvalued, because their book value is potentially understated. And why is the book value understated? It's because the accounting forces them to expense certain things, even though in reality these firms are creating assets and stuff. And those assets are never going to be, and assets in the corresponding, let's say, shareholders' equity or whatever, is never going to be on their actual balance sheet. So, that, so many of my signals required not just an understanding of how, what the firm is and what it's doing, a pretty high level, at least a high level understanding of how accounting can potentially distort some of these ratios and how understanding these ratios at slightly more, let's say, uh, atomic level can help you make better decisions. It's interesting because you, you just partially answered my next question, which is I was going to ask you about intangible assets. Because I think one of the things, one of the reasons your strategy has done very well is you are getting at a lot of firms that have very high levels of intangible assets. Um, you know, sort of at that top of the price to book range, you have a lot of firms that have high intangibles. And then right. you're looking at things like R&D and advertising that, you know, probably create those intangible assets. Exactly. And I'm wondering if all of us are missing something in terms of how we're accounting for all that. Do you think there's, we need changes to the way we measure assets? Because, you know, estimates are intangible assets might be something like 80% of total assets across all companies right now. Do you think we need to look at this differently? Or do you think standards might have to change in how we look at these intangible assets? See, this is a very interesting debate, and uh, I actually, uh, there's, a, there's an article of mine, no, it's not an article of mine, there's a debate between me and uh, uh, Baruch Lev, who's this very, very highly regarded professor at NYU. He's a big proponent of uh, uh, changing the accounting standards and mandating some sort of uh, 
forced capitalization of these intangible assets and stuff saying that his argument is accounting isn't measuring what it ought to measure okay i actually disagree with that for the following reason right if you make it one size fits all uh you are essentially as it is there are tremendous amounts of ways managers can manipulate accounting you're just giving them another massive tool to do so i think a better approach is let the accounting be where it is because whenever you are forcing this sort of these assets by nature are speculative right you are essentially putting a speculative asset onto the balance sheet and you are forcing auditors to sign off on the valuation of these very speculative assets i think a better approach is to have the accounting stay as it is and you can actually mandate footnote disclosure saying that firms should provide more information about the nature of their intangible activities and then you and i as investors as users of financial information we should feel free to make these adjustments as needed so if you just think about the the approach in g score right g score took the book to market or market to book ratio as given but then it tried to account for the fact that book values can be understated by having signals associated with it i personally think that's a better approach because it allows you to distinguish between two high market to book firms one of which is actually spending lots of money on these intangible generating activities and one of which is not so you know uh, i'll send uh, justin a link to that article where i actually have this discussion with uh, professor lev and i'm i'm not saying he's wrong and i'm right i'm just presenting two sides of the story one of it says this thing should be in the balance sheet accounting is missing what it's missing uh, uh, missing all these uh, new economy intangible stuff and the other view is yes we know that's the case but do we want to give uh, these uh, assets the good housekeeping seal of approval and put them on the balance sheets the answer is it's not very clear cut yeah in many ways you were ahead of your time in this because this is a big thing now you know a lot of people are looking at how do we enhance the price to book with intangible assets and you know you recognized back when you wrote this paper that you could sort of adjust this and with these tests you could identify these types of firms um but you're probably right i mean it would it would be difficult to you probably have all kinds of manipulation issues and things like that if you started putting this stuff right. onto the balance sheet right. um right. i want to also ask you oh go ahead sure go ahead sorry actually uh, around that same time a few years later i think in 2007 or 8 i was actually uh, working on a on a project with one of my former colleagues at columbia where we tried to do sort of this enhanced book to market ratio but we were thinking of it more in terms of you know the farmer french factors uh and pharma use uh, like book to market as one of their factors right is that that their, their uh, uh hml or whatever right uh, which uses the book to market ratio we wanted to see if this enhanced book to market ratio which uh, uh, accounts for all this r&d and advertising and so on and so forth that actually helps the performance of the pharma french factors and the answer if i remember right and we didn't really pursue this further was it does but the magnitude of the differences are so small it wasn't worth pursuing so so okay. that that's that's something we were working on like way back when like more than more than 10 years ago so yeah and it's also interesting at the you know sort of at the bottom of the price to book range this has lost a lot less of an impact so those types of firms have very have less intangible assets whereas the top right, where right. you're dealing with the g score they have way more right so um, yeah the petrosky firms which he looked at yeah it's not a big deal at all for him so but certainly for the for the uh, sorry i'm i'm sorry i'm moving a bit all right Uh, no the uh, the uh, the uh, G score sample, uh, the intangible assets is really a you know, and how you account for it can make a big difference. I want to just one more question on this. I want to ask you about how we define value and growth. You know, all of us, whether we're practitioners or academics, we tend to say, all right, value is your cheap stocks and growth is your expensive stocks. And one of the things I thought about testing with G score, and I was just wondering if, what your thoughts are and if it would be valuable, is what if we tried to use a a measure of actual growth. maybe as a starting point and then apply g score beyond that so if we look at something like say fundamental momentum like stocks where momentum is you know fundamentals are improving or something like price momentum you know things that have been positive factors over time do you think that would potentially enhance it or do you think maybe you're already filtering out the best firms from that expensive group so there's probably no value to be added there i have to actually give this some thought so you're saying don't use the market to book or the book to market ratio as your uh, first card just look at growth itself Yeah, I'm just saying, start. you know, if you could argue maybe that there's some stocks that are expensive that are expensive for a reason and maybe some that aren't. And so, 
but then again, you're so getting at I, that already with your strategy. So maybe that wouldn't add any right, value because you're already right. you're already trying to filter out the stocks that are expensive and deserve to be expensive. Right. So if you, uh, you know, I, I saw the list of questions that Justin had sent me and one of them was talking about my more recent paper, right? The, the, the one where we tried to combine both uh, quality and value or uh, in, in as strategies, right? The thing about both G-score and F-score as done by uh, Joe and myself, we are looking only at fundamentals, right? We're not looking at valuation per se. We're saying, hey, here are some fundamentals and here are some firms which rank very highly on fundamentals and here are some firms which rank low on fundamentals. And if the market doesn't get it or has not been paying attention to it, this should predict future returns. But it doesn't take into account the fact the market might be taking into this into consideration. And so in my recent paper, which I published, I believe last year uh, uh, in, in contemporary accounting research with Kevin Lee, we tried to use this valuation ratios and we use two ratios. One is we use this ratio called the V2P ratio, where we estimate intrinsic value by looking at the forecast and stuff and saying, okay, this should be the value of the firm and compare it to price. And we say a high, a high V2P stock is one which appears to be relatively less valued. So it's undervalued, a low V2P is the other way around. And we try to interact this with the F-score and G-score. Now, as it turns out, F-score predicts returns, G-score predicts returns, and this V2P ratio also predicts returns. But the correlation between F-score and G-score and this VP is actually negative. That is, and this is a very, very old uh, insight. It's not, I'm not the first one to say it. Uh, if you go back to Graham and Dodd, they, their strategy actually has both aspects to it. They're looking for stocks which have good fundamentals, and stocks which appear to be relatively cheap, right? Because it turns out the average stock with good fundamentals is not cheap. And the average stock which is cheap doesn't have good fundamentals. Because on average markets on are sort of efficient, like in the, in the quality is kind of priced, right? But having said that, there will always be what I call off diagonal elements. There will always be some high quality stocks which appear to be relatively modestly priced and they will always and the second is certainly true there will always be some highly priced stocks which have poor fundamentals so if you can identify those off diagonal elements it can be extremely valuable so if you're a long only investor you want the moderately priced stock which has very good fundamentals on the other hand if you're somebody who likes to go long short you care about the other off diagonal element as well which is the highly priced stock, which actually has low fundamentals. And so it doesn't deserve to be highly priced. So that's what this, my second paper kind of tried to uh, get a handle on. And the, that paper was the fundamental analysis combining the search for quality and the search for value. That's yes. the title. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. And, and, and were the long-term, that was, what'd you do back to like 1970s on the, te on the back test? Do you recall? No, no, no. We oh. uh, go all the way we up all the way to, back. We go, oh yeah, we go all the way back to, I believe, the early 70s, but yeah. we, uh, uh, we go all the way up to 2015 or something. So right, right, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a multi-decade. And the results, I, I believe the combined value and quality performance right. is superior. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a, of course, to be fair, we are looking at finer and finer subsets, right? So we're not comparing apples to apples, you know, okay, comparing right. deciles to deciles. Mm -hmm. But having said that, we also show in our paper that this is much better than what you could do with just a finer cut on uh, value or finer cut on like this thing. So for example, even if you look at the top 5% of this particular single dimensional strategy, this multi-dimensional intersection strategy we come up with does much better. So it's important to look at. So the point is there's no point buying a high quality stock if it's fully priced. If, if, if the market knows its value and it's giving this firm a very, very high multiple, there's no alpha left there because the market's realized it. So you, what you want is you want those firms which are, certainly have high quality, but for relative to their quality, the valuation still seems reasonable. That's, that's the basic insight of that page. So it's just, uh, it's just an additional uh, card saying that don't do G-score by itself. 
if with the or don't do f score by itself if you can combine f score and g score with some dimension of value and by and the word value here doesn't mean value versus growth it's value with respect to what you should be worth so you could have a quote unquote value firm which uh, uh, defined using the book to market ratio which is not really a value firm because it's it's really deserves its bad valuation on the other hand you could have a growth firm which would still be a value simply because relative to its growth prospects it actually is reasonably priced so yeah this gets at the whole idea that google really was a value stock you know 5 years ago considering what it's done uh, absolutely. since absolutely yeah and and you can you can argue that like is, I, i mean i've been having uh, so i'm by the way uh, i'm not somebody who invests that much in individual stocks uh, maybe to my detriment because i had like uh, a friend of mine who asked me to buy tesla at 500 dollars like you know a few months ago and i didn't <laughs> so uh but uh, when you watch a a, a stock like uh, tesla going up right I, i mean you have to wonder like what what actually is going on but on the other hand you you take a company like google or you take a company like apple or whatever i mean yes the valuations are ridiculously high but the fundamentals are ridiculously good so the question is are uh, is it can you just say that because a firm has a valuation of 2 trillion dollars or whatever it is that it's overvalued the answer is not because you got to look at the 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 expectations of the future cash flows or earnings and stuff and see if this stock seems reasonably priced relative to its fundamentals and the answer might well be yes so playing on that whole thing with quality versus value that you talked about in your paper one of the things all of us that implement these types of strategies sometimes struggle with is sort of the warren buffett versus the ben graham debate so if you were to look at piotrowski's work that's more of a ben graham strategy so he's starting with value and then within that value he's trying to find the highest quality companies he can and your work is sort of the other direction it's more the warren buffett way it's i'm going to start with quality i'm going to get high quality companies and then i'm going to find the cheapest ones I can and I'm wondering what you think about that. I wonder I mean obviously you wrote the paper supporting the quality first approach but I'm wondering do you think there's a right way to do that or do you think it's sort of in the eye of the beholder in terms of how that's done? I'm just wondering how you think about blending quality and value together. So uh so in the my most recent paper like right, we literally do them parallelly like we said let's do quality here, let's do value here and let's intersect the two. Okay. So we don't we really don't even have a hierarchy that I do quality first and then look for value. I I don't do value first and then look for quality. I literally intersect the two and say I want quality that's reasonably priced. So I mean, uh, I'm going to repeat uh an analogy I used in my uh the 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 uh the Acquirers podcast interview which is I I really like this analogy the TJ Maxx school of investing. It's like, you know, you actually go like you know most people when you go to a place like tj max you're not going there to buy something specific you're going to look for deals but you want to look for something which is of high quality as well so you go there and you can say you know i scored this really nice a uh, calvin klein jacket for like 100 bucks it would have cost me 350 bucks normally so i have the quality that it's a calvin klein but i i have this sort of pleasure that i paid 100 bucks for it when it's notional value could be 350 right so what you want is you want the quality which comes with all your fundamental signals that you know this firm has earnings it has earning growth the accounting is actually pretty solid all those kinds of things but at the same time the valuation ratios or whatever like in my case the v2p or whatever gives you assurance that you got a deal as well so if you can combine those two approaches towards your investing at least that paper shows in the long run you'll do pretty well Yeah, it's sort of a best of both worlds approach. By the way, exactly. TJ, TJ, um, TJX and TJ Maxx is a great. It's been a great stock. <laughs> oh, okay, great, I, I, <laughs> I know it has. I, I hadn't even thought about the stock. I was thinking more about the company and its products. So. Yeah. Um, one of the things, and you've kind of answered this. I think it's weaved in, but I wanted just to ask you. Obviously, like traditional value investing. you know um low price to book stocks if you're just doing a sort on that you know it's been a pretty tough decade for portfolios right. that are built using those um types of metrics and you know there's some i mean there's a lot of different arguments i mean some are saying that you know technology has broken value investing or the federal reserve policy with low interest rates and and to your point about these you know large cap tech companies that have really grown in and delivered on their fundamentals i mean obviously they're making up more and more of a heavier weight in these market cap weighted indices but do you ever think about this struggle of of like what i would call like traditional value investing and maybe 
have any thoughts about what it may mean or what it may mean for the future? I know it's a pretty broad question, but I'm just wondering what your opinion is on the struggles here. See, I think the struggle has to do with the fact that this is the, like going back to your earlier question, and I think Jack's earlier question about what the definition of value is, right? If you take this incredibly static definition of value is defined by a like a valuation ratio, like the book to market ratio, the pre P2E ratio. Yes, these, these stocks have gotten hammered, right? Uh, that's because people have been extremely mechanical saying, I will not buy a stock whose PE ratio is like, you know, more than 10, or I will not buy a stock who's like, you know, trading at like a market to book ratio more than 1.5. And so you start putting these artificial structures on yourself, right? Without asking a question about why is your PE ratio more than 10 or why is your market book ratio more than 1.5? So I think because people have been so mechanical about the definition of what value investing in is they haven't really been doing value investing. They've been doing very mechanical investing, right? Value investing is, uh, is value. So I keep giving uh, my students uh, uh, a, a, an analogy, right? Like let's, let's, let's say you have two cars. Let's say you have a Hyundai and you have a Mercedes Benz S class, right? The Hyundai might have a value of $25,000 and the S class might have a value of $100,000. But what determines the value of that particular asset is what it's trading at with respect to what its intrinsic value is. Suppose you're able to get that S-Class Mercedes-Benz for $80,000, right? And you're going to get the Hyundai at full price. That Mercedes-Benz S-Class just became a value stock. So technically you would consider it to be a luxury item. It's highly priced and so on and so forth. But relative to its intrinsic value, it's, value, it's trading at a lower price and therefore it's a good deal. So if you take a similar kind of approach and say, don't use mechanical multiples. Which will, so in this, if you use a mechanical multiple, like the price to earnings ratio or a price to book ratio, you wouldn't have considered buying that Mercedes Benz S, S stock. You would have not considered buying a Google or a Microsoft saying, oh, no, no, Google is kind of expensive. Apple is expensive. It's P ratio is 22, but or whatever. Now it's like in the thirties, whatever. But the point is you're missing out on why the P ratio is what it is. It's because this firm, literally prints money and it's growing, which is pretty amazing for a company, which is as in depth, has as much penetration as it does. It still grows its revenues and profits. And so those are the things you should consider, not the mechanical thing. Like, you know, if you're in the top uh, 20% uh, of uh, book to market ratios, you're a value stock. On, and if you're in the bottom 20%, you're a growth stock. And if you use a very mechanical static approach, you are going to make uh, do badly. All those factors you consider, you mentioned, probably have played a role. The fact that this uh, new millennium has been extremely good for these companies at the vanguard of technology, and it's not been good for the traditional kind of companies. And uh, there have been other factors people have said, like, you know, that in general, there's been a disassociation with fundamentals because of the rise of passive investing in ETFs and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so there's all kinds of explanations one can come up with. Mm -hmm. But I would argue the biggest thing is, you know, if you define value investing, I would call G-score a value investing strategy, right? Because I am looking for, especially the, my, the, the, the recent version of my paper, which combines G-score with the valuation metric, is absolutely value investing because you're looking for value looking for value among growing firms, but it's still looking for value. So in a deep value strategy in the past 10 years with how well it's done, um, yep. those firms were all significantly undervalued relative to what they ended up doing. Right. By the way, professor, I love, I love the ability, your ability to make these real world analogies. And I think when you can do that in investing, it just can take these concepts and just make them understandable for, um, you know, the average, the average person that may not be, you know, in it day to day. So, so those are, those are really great. Um, so yeah. So, so this, I think has to do something to do with my, my sort of training at Harvard business school where, uh, so Harvard business school is not known as a place of great intellectual rigor. My, my research is quite rigorous, but that's stuff I picked up along the way. But one thing they really drilled into us was you should have the ability to explain whatever you're doing to a lay person. Hmm in like one paragraph, right? If your stuff is something that you can only explain to other academics, I mean, you're not doing anything useful. Mm. So I've always tried to, you know, so I've tried to make my research quite approachable. So if you look at my papers, 
you don't really need any great knowledge of econometrics. You can read my papers and get a sense of what I'm doing, even if you're you know not the most technically qualified. Obviously, you need to know the have the basics of let's say accounting and finance and economics and all, but you don't need to be like a PhD certainly to understand what I'm talking about. So. I want to shift and talk about one of your other papers about financial stocks, because one of the things both practitioners like us and academics like you tend to do with our strategies is we'll create this great strategy and then we'll say, all right, just throw out the financial stocks because they're so different. They, it just right. doesn't apply. And, and you right. tried to tackle that in this paper. You tried to take a look right. at some ways to maybe separate winners from losers right. in financial stocks. So I'm wondering if you could talk about why financials are unique and why they can't be valued with some of these traditional methods. And then what some of the right. things you came up with that do help to separate winners from losers in that space. I'm glad you asked this question. So here, here too, right? This came from teaching. So, so I've been teaching this uh, financial statement analysis now called uh, business analysis and valuation at Toronto for basically my entire academic career, 20 plus years. Uh, so students would come to me and say, you know, for the group project, say, I, I want to analyze company A, I want to analyze company B. And I would always put out this notice saying, okay, you can analyze any company you want, but no financial services, no utilities and stuff because they are different. And I would just give this like blanket, they are different thing, which is deeply dissatisfying for both the students and me. Because remember, I taught in New York for 12 years a large percentage of the students were going to end up working for one of those financial services firms. Hmm. And they couldn't analyze a Goldman Sachs or they couldn't analyze a Citibank or whatever, a Bank of America or whatever the case might be. So I said, this is ridiculous. And so I said, I'm going to at least start one session, one class where I'll say, okay, your traditional ratio analysis doesn't work in banks, but what does work? So I actually, I actually went back to school. I went back and I read some books and said, okay, what are some ratios people are looking at in the financial services sector? And this is purely from a teaching perspective. So I said, okay, you know, you can't do a traditional ratio analysis because, you know, the whole financial statement is different. Like, you know, I didn't know what a bank's financial statements was till I actually looked at it. And I saw the word revenue appearing halfway through the income statement. I said, what's going on? Like, you know, then I, then I saw like, you know, that, okay, financing is operations. So, so this operations versus financing is totally different, you know. Nobody talks about debt to equity ratio. It's like, you know, it's capital adequacy. And so I firstly spent a little bit of time trying to understand this stuff myself. I'm no way an expert, but at least have the sort of basic idea in my mind. And I first taught it. So I would teach it and I, I would actually have this very interesting case. And this case was about uh, Bank of America acquiring fleet. If you remember Bank of America acquired fleet in like 2006 or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I then looked at those two companies and looked at the ratios and tried to look at some of the ratios and see why is, why are the ratios different? How does it affect the valuation? So basically uh, what I tried to do was I tried to give analogs. They're not exactly the same, but what are the analogs to like an asset turnover ratio, uh, a profit margin ratio? So I looked at things like, you know, what's your net interest margin? Then how risky you are. So look at a capital adequacy ratio. Look at your loan loss preserve, uh, loan loss uh, provision ratios and stuff. So, so I came up with like some seven or eight ratios, which try to look at things like you know your operational efficiency, your prudence, and your growth prospects. So I try to kind of mirror something similar to what people like Piotrowski does in F score or what I do in G score, but using these bank ratios. And then as time went by, I had some colleagues in Toronto and some of them were actually more interested in financial services. So we had this discussion saying, hey, why don't we try to use this sort of F-score, G-score methodology, but use it using these ratios which are very particular for banks. Because if you look at Piotrowski's paper or my paper, just like you said, we look at the universe of firms, we exclude banks. So they basically be kicking out all those banks. And those banks might be a significant portion of you know stock markets and certainly they have a huge impact on the GDP as a financial crisis should so what we tried to do in that paper was exactly do the uh, the analog but uh, do it for bank stocks and so we came up with these I think I don't remember the exact number but we came up with like seven or eight ratios so we looked at things like uh, net interest margin uh, obviously we looked at ROE and ROA because profitability does matter but we looked at like loan loss provision ratio, earning assets ratios, loans to deposits ratio. So ratios which try to look at which banks are being prudent and which banks are being 
efficient with the way they use their resources and which banks are also investing in like growth. And so we try to uh, combine those into a index. Uh, I'm very, very innovative in my names, G for growth and B for banks. So it's called B score. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we actually found that this B score stuff actually works reasonably well in predicting winners and losers in banks. And what was particularly interesting was, and this is back testing obviously, right? So I don't know, uh, it should have worked in real time too. It actually worked well during the financial uh, financial crisis. In, this, in, in terms of, if you look at the year 2008 and 2009, right? Bank stocks got killed, right? The average bank stock earned like negative 70%. But if you had invested in the bank stocks which had high B scores, you would have earned like negative 15% or something. Hmm. So uh -huh. it would have helped. I mean, it's still it's still a negative return. If you're done long shot, you'd have made lots of money. If you're done long shot within banks, right? Invested in the high B score and gone short in the low B score, you'd have made uh, money, but I'm just saying the point is just paying attention to the bank fundamentals the same way as you pay attention to the regular fundamentals would have actually stead you, uh, you know, held you in good stead. And the basic point again is the same. Like you know, uh, it's important to look at fundamentals, but what good fundamentals are depends on the context. So like the Piotrowski F score is great for value firms. My G score might be good for growth growth firms. And something like a B score or something like that might actually work well in the financial services or banking. Um, I bet that that performance in a way it was a reflection of maybe your metrics were selecting more conservatively run financial institutions, um, which would have probably held up a little bit better. Probably. So like if certainly uh, prudence was one of the factors we looked at. So for example, if you had good loan loss uh, uh, provisions in the past, uh, it might have, but remember all these signals don't necessarily work together. Like, so for example, if you have an extremely good capital adequacy ratio, it will hurt your ROA, right? It will hurt your ROE and stuff because you, you have less assets, which are actually deployed yeah. and stuff, right? So you're taking less risk. So, so it's not, it's not clear that these things, all signals don't go together. Some of them are probably negatively correlated, but for the index to do well, you obviously need a good mix of these things where you obviously not. You know, you don't want a bank to be somebody who just, you know, takes some people's money and just keeps everything uh, out of fear that somebody's not going to pay. On the other hand, you don't want a bank which is like just taking an incredible amount of risk and making lendy, uh, risky lending decisions to earn a very high spread. So you want something which has a combination of an appropriate level of risk taking. And that's probably what our B-score paper actually uh, picked up. Hmm. Now, obviously, I haven't gone and back tested it and further and see how it's done. Uh, in these few years since the market has recovered, but hey, maybe that's the next thing for you guys to do in Validia. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we can look at that for sure. Uh, Jack and I, I wanted to kind of switch gears for a second here and talk about um, another piece of research um, that you wrote. Jack and I are both um, active on Twitter. Uh, we don't have very large followings. I think I might have like 1,300 followers. Jack is maybe cracking the 2,000. So, we're uh, we're working on our our building our our, our number of followers, but you wrote a paper that looked at um, whether Twitter and the aggregate opinion of investors on Twitter had any predictability with future earnings and stock returns. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Could you maybe give an overview of what you sure. found? Absolutely. So by the way, uh, people have looked at Twitter and, and the like academics and others have looked at Twitter in, in one of two ways. Many academics in, especially in accounting, have looked at Twitter as a disclosure uh, mechanism. That is how firms are using Twitter to disseminate their own financials and seeing if that helps them, their stock prices be more efficient because they're getting the information out to investors faster. They may be more timely with their disclosures, with their press releases and so on and so forth. So that was people looking at it from an investor relations perspective. Uh, people in finance are looking at Twitter in an aggregate perspective, saying that, you know, if the aggregate sentiment of everybody on Twitter about the economy or whatever is positive or negative, what implications does it have for, let's say, how well the S&P does next month or something like that? Our paper was different because we were looking at Twitter at the firm level. So let's just say you have a whole bunch of people tweeting about dollar symbol AAPL, okay? And so we aggregate the tweets. So there were a couple of things we did. Firstly, we had to, uh, this was, uh, I guess if we had planned it in advance, we could have been creating the data set ourselves, but we decided to do the project and we had to buy a huge, 
a core dump of tweets from Twitter, actually from this company called GNIP, which now has been acquired by Twitter, which was a data aggregator. So, so we bought these tweets and then we looked at, these are tweets by individual people. So this could be tweets by people like you, or it could be just some random person saying, hey, I think dollar symbol AAPL is gonna pop or, or something, but it needs to have that dollar, uh, the, the cash tag of that ticker. And we looked at the period, let's say that 10 days before earnings announcement. So uh, from like 12 days before to like three days before. So there's no spillover into the actual announcement. And we looked at each tweet and there were two or three different ways of doing it, but we parsed each tweet either by uh, using some sort of algorithm which reads the tweet as a whole or by doing some sort of word count of how many positive and how many negative words are there in each tweet. So we then give each tweet by each tweeter a certain value. And then we aggregate all the tweets for, you know, tweeted by anybody about that given stock. And we use some sort of common sense uh, uh, adjustments. So for example, you know, if Justin has 2000 followers and Jack has 5000 followers and I have 10 followers and each of us tweet about Apple, I'll give more importance to your tweets than my tweets based on the number of followers you have and stuff. Obviously, if Jack Kramer says something and he has like a, a million followers, we'll give that more importance and stuff. So we kind of try to come up with this, this, this notion of wisdom of crowds. So this whole thing is based on this idea of called wisdom of crowds. And it's actually a very fascinating story. So if you, in the 19th century, there was this British social scientist, I think his name was Thomas Galton. He carried out these experiments in, in like country fairs where you have this massive cow and you ask this random crowd of people, what do you think the weight of the cow is? And one person will say, I think it's 300 pounds. And one person will say it's 2000 pounds. And one person will say it's 5,000 pounds. And he got all those responses. And then he would have some experts, people who are actually you know, working in the dairy industry and have them make the guess. What he found was that the average, first of all, the people were all over the map. Yeah, you know, some people are going to be way, it's like the price is right. One person is going to guess like 20 bucks and the other person is going to get 5,000 bucks. But you take the average of what these people say. I, I don't remember if it was mean or median, probably the median, right? Of what these people say. That was often closer to the truth than what the expert said. So this is what people refer to as wisdom of crowds. Mm -hmm. So, so what we said is, does this wisdom of crowds apply to something like Twitter? Because Twitter is this incredibly powerful and, you know, as you can see, you know, it, it can be incredibly destructive as well with fake news and it can influence things like elections and so on and so forth. But it's an incredibly powerful new source of information. And so we said, can we do this wisdom of crowds in the case of uh, firms? So we aggregate all these tweets and come up with some sort of an opinion, aggregate opinion variable. And we ask ourselves, does this aggregate opinion variable predict future earning surprise? and the stock market's reaction to the earnings surprise. And what we found was it actually does. So for example, if the aggregate earnings, aggregate sentiment on Twitter for a stock is positive, uh, th that firm is likely to have a positive earnings surprise. So there's something in Twitter, the collective wisdom of everybody over and above what's already out there. So we control for what's in the financial statements we control for what's already out there in the business press. So we control for sentiment in traditional media and so on and so forth. And controlling for all that, the sentiment on Twitter predicts future surprises. And it doesn't predict just the future surprise. It also predicts the market's reaction. So not only is information relevant, it's incrementally relevant. So this information hasn't reached the market through other sources. Mm. And then we find that Twitter has two roles. One is it can be new information. So for example, some some dude out there can tweet, hey, I think dollar uh, symbol AAPL is not doing well because this new iPhone 12, the lines at the, at the Apple store weren't as long as they used to be. It could be something quite atomic, like some random tidbit like that, right? You know, and if you aggregate all that together, it seems to add some value. So that's what we found. Twitter has two roles. Number one, this kind of stuff, people actually providing new information and this is like a new source of information. It's a democratic source of information. The traditional, traditional sources of information, like you know, analysts and firms and stuff, they have things like conflict of interest and all these things which affect the independence of that information. Now, this information can be incredibly noisy and can be incredibly wrong, but you're hoping that with a large number, the wisdom of crowds will 
throw out the extremely wrong opinions on both sides and you're getting the aggregate stuff. And the second thing Twitter does is it's also a means of dissemination. So we found that both original tweets as well as disseminating tweets where the person is not tweeting something original, but linking to, hey, look at this cool report on <coughs> Apple from Fidelity or something like that. We found that those kind of tweets also helped predict exactly what's going on, right? You know, so, so both the information aspect as well as the disclosure aspect. Now, actually, I have a follow paper to that, which I'm working on right now, just trying to see if this has a similar impact on uh, debt markets. And the logic here is what we found in the first paper was the information on Twitter actually works better when the information is negative. That is negative information has more credibility than positive information. And given that this information is more important when it's negative, a natural reaction to our question to ask was, should this matter for fixed income markets, which seem to focus much more on negative news, right? So for example, you know, you have things like bankruptcy risk and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, the likelihood of being downgraded and so on and so forth. So what we actually find was this information on Twitter actually predicts changes in things like your Altman Z score and so on and so forth in future quarters. And so in a sense, it can predict expected risk and changes in riskiness. It works better for speculative bonds with this, as opposed to, let's say, high-grade bonds. Again, because they, those are much more sensitive to bad news. And so that's what we're working on right now. So I think uh, uh, that's the reason why many uh, 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 institutional investors are actually paying good money to get real-time feeds with Twitter sentiment being provided by different data providers. So. That'll be yeah, that's really interesting. interesting. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I found, I was probably skeptical about joining Twitter when I first did, but I found like the quality of information on Twitter is incredible. And the talented, smart people, especially in the finance space that are there, I've, I've been blown away by that. Yeah. And some, it's actually before this Twitter, there was a paper by a couple of people in finance who looked at uh, uh, reports on Seeking Alpha, right? And Seeking Alpha, again, this is completely crowdsourced, right? Oh, there's another, there's a data source called Estimize, I'm sure you've heard of, right? Yep, Where yep. people have actually shown that the analyst focus on Estimize are much more accurate than the actual analyst focus. Mm -hmm. yep. Interesting. So it's kind of picking up the same thing that, you know, these are people, so you can argue that why, are, you know, how can I trust this? It's free. And if some person is putting it up, the fact is there are lots of people putting it up. There is strength in numbers. And on average, this stuff actually works pretty well. So. I've also seen some uh, research or data that shows like this natural length, like aggregation of, uh, you know, sort of news and sentiment. It, it can, to your point about risk or identifying like a negative uh, screen, if you will, like it does a good job of, of that, or maybe a better job of that um, in terms of identifying companies that, you know, are, are likely to have problems. Uh, okay. If, if you can, uh, actually, I'd love to see that. If you can provide me a link, you know. Okay, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I'll send you, I'll send you yeah. something on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'd be great, yeah. For the, uh, for the last question, I wanted to shift to the practical application of, of the work you've done. Uh, you know, one of the things I noticed when you talked to Toby Carlisle is you talked about how, because you of the time constraints you have, you know, the pro your investments primarily are passive investments. You're primarily investing in indexes. But I was wondering right. if you took that constraint away, given all the things you've looked at, you've looked at value, you've looked at quality, you've looked at growth. I'm wondering if you took that constraint away and you had to invest for the next 30 years, would you continue to index? Or, or do you think you know, some of these things are worth investing in in terms of generating excess returns over the market? And if so, or is well, there an area you might focus on, growth, value, quality, something like that? So, um, you know, that's a great question. Now, obviously, um, I think, the stuff that what you guys do is incredibly valuable in the sense that you guys, you guys are the, you take the, you know, what could remain ivory tower. I mean, I try to make sure that my research is not ivory tower. It's accessible, but the fact is it's accessible only if people choose to access it. So people like you who take academic research and actually apply it in, and, and obviously modify it in, in whatever way you see fit, but apply it in a way that's approachable to the actual investor. Is, ex is extremely useful. So uh, I hope that will continue to be the case. And I know that, I know for a fact that you know, the reason why uh, all these hedge funds and all these guys often hire PhDs in accounting and finance is because they're looking for people to actually bring some of those insights and apply them. So I think there's some value to that. So I'm not sure I'm going to continue doing this. Uh, like, you know, part of it is simply because I've been so busy and I just haven't. Think about if you're, if you're a, 
if you're a day-to-day stock investor, you really need to have time to spend on it every day, right? You need to monitor your portfolio, portfolio every day. You need to have like, you know, stop loss functions and, you know, entry points and exit points and all that stuff. And I just didn't have the time or the inclination to do that. And, you know, my investments were doing okay. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's infected with this FOMO business. Everybody seems to be, which is like, you know, man, I wish I'd gotten to the slide 500 or I knew this thing was coming. I wish I'd bought Zoom stock and stuff. I mean, these are all things which don't bother me because I've had a few good, like I, I did buy a, a handful of Apple stock in the year 2000. Like, you know, I was lucky enough, like, you know, not much, a few thousand dollars, but that's probably, you know, increased a hundredfold or whatever it is since then, right? So, so you have to, you know, count your blessings and move on. So, but getting back to your actual question, right? Fundamentally, I'm a big believer in long run market efficiency, but I'm also, I'm not a doctrinaire believer in market efficiency. Right? If markets were completely efficient and perfectly efficient, I mean, I wouldn't have my research and you guys wouldn't be doing the business. You, you guys wouldn't be in the business you're in. So you require a certain amount of, market inefficiency uh, but you, what you also need to know is you need to understand why the markets are being inefficient and trying to identify the channel through which markets are being inefficient and I think one of the reasons why markets are inefficient and I firmly believe this is when I say markets it's it's an aggregation of individuals right so the people who make the markets are often mechanical about doing things and they're mechanical about doing things like, for example, identifying what's a value stock, what's a growth stock. Or I'll give you a simple example, right? You know, people, when they do mergers and acquisitions, they do this thing called accretion and dilution. Okay? This is something which really angers me because I think this is just so wrong. Right? It's like they, they take such a mechanical view that if you buy a company with a lower P ratio, this is an accretive transaction. Simply because magically that firm's earnings will get your P ratio and everybody's happy. Like, you know without trying to understand that the lower P ratio might have something to do with the, you know, the fact that the firm had a lower growth prospect or was less risky or whatever the case might be. So I think when people are extreme, and this, this is, by the way, is one of the reasons why on average, most M&As don't perform well because people are doing things extremely mechanically. So as long as there's some subset of the population which does things mechanically, you will find that doing things in a slightly more analytical fashion understanding the accounting, understanding the finance, understanding the economics will always give you the edge in trying to find that elusive alpha everybody's out for. So uh, again, who knows what the flavor of the next 15 years uh, will be. So for example, when I wrote the G-score paper, I always envisioned this was going to be a long shot idea. In fact, if you look at my paper, I end the paper by saying that this paper is probably more applicable on the short side because I've already identified firms which are extremely highly valued. So the upside is likely to be smaller. The downside is likely to be higher. The reality has turned out to be exactly 180 degrees the other way, right? So, so it's very difficult to predict how these things are going. But having said that, if you just apply common sense strategy, like, you know, don't overpay for something unless you know why you're paying for it, okay? Know why a firm is valued the way it, way it is and understand the basics of what makes a firm succeed or, or or fail. So, for example, it's quite possible that while we might like discuss about how crazy it is, Tesla might yet be undervalued. Who knows? Because you really need to understand. You need to have a crystal ball about you know the future of like the electrification and EVs and what the conventional IC engine uh, uh, auto companies are going to do and so on and so forth. So it, it it's it's going to require lots of in-depth analysis, but. Uh, uh, I, my overall, this is probably not a very satisfactory answer, but just understand what you're buying. Don't buy something because the guy next door is buying it or because the ratio looks good or it's, you know, the ratio looks good or whatever it could be because, you know, the firm is, you know, not worth what it's, you know, the, a low PE firm might be a low PE firm because it deserves to be a low PE firm. On the other hand, high PE firm might actually still be undervalued because it's got very good prospects. So try to try tie in these three things together. And I think uh, in the long run, you you can't do too badly. Professor Mohiran, I think that's a great, yeah, that's a great way to sort of, I think, bookend the um, conversation today. Um, you shared a lot of wisdom. This has been enlightening and educational for me. Um, if investors, you know, I know you're sort of a little bit under the radar, um, but if, you know, people want to learn more about you and your research and 
what you're doing, where can they go to uh, find out more or learn more about you? Okay. Uh, so firstly, most of our papers are in the public domain. So mm -hmm. uh, many of my papers are available on my own website. So if you just Google my name, Artha Mohanram uh, at the University of Toronto Rotman School of Management, you should be able to find my website and uh, you know many of the papers would be there. You can also obtain many of the papers through searches on places like Google Scholar and SSRN.com. Many of these, uh, the SSRN may not have the published version of the paper. It might have a slightly earlier version of the paper because of copyright reasons, but the insights are all going to be there. So if you look at my, if you look at uh, SSRN.com, my most downloaded version my paper is my G-score paper, but it's actually a working paper version of the paper, but that's fine. It's basically the same insight. So you can certainly get many of our, uh, and this is not just for me. If you want insights from any academic, right? Most of the stuff is going to be on their websites. It's going to be on Google Scholar. It's going to be on SSRN.com. So that's great. Three places you can go to. Yeah, and we'll put links to all the stuff that we referenced um, in the show notes as well. So thank you sure. very much for uh, joining us. Hopefully we get to do this again sometime. Um, and Anytime. It's not, and it's not another 15 years uh, <laughs> from the next time we see you. <laughs> but okay. it, we, we certainly enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Absolutely. And once things improve and if you guys come up uh, all the way up here to Canada, I'd love to, you know, host you guys at my office or something and we can, we can have a chat. That's great. Thank you. Terrific. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Thank you very much. Thanks. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.